Gene, welcome back to Gnostic Media Research and Publishing's podcast number 50. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, uh, Jan, and thanks for having me back. I really appreciate uh, our in-depth discussion last week, and I'm excited to uh, dive right back into this. Uh, would you like to start out by giving a little bit of a recap on what we covered last week? Uh, yes, and I'd, and I'd like to say that although this may appear in-depth, it's really just an introduction. Um, but it's, it's a, a fairly... Uh, a good review as to what you can expect once you do start your studies. So um, I'll, I'll quickly recap what, uh, in, in order of importance, what we're trying to achieve uh, with the seven liberal arts, with the trivium and quadrivium. Number one is we're trying to discern reality from unreality. And it's through the trivium, which uh, the three subjects that are involved with the trivium are actually the art and the science of the mind. Uh, we're concerned with training the mind how to think and how to creatively express itself. Now with the quadrivium, which we really haven't covered yet, we could say that this is really the art and science of matter. It's, uh, it has to do with the measurement of matter. Uh, this is the realm of extension. Now, mind, of course, doesn't have extension. But when we get into the quadrivium, we tie mind and matter together. Now, Pythagoras, um, who was trained in, in the ancient world uh, along a path of the mystery schools, starting in India, going through uh, Mesopotamia, Persia, and finally to India, and it's in India where he, uh, where he got his final initiation and became a master of mind and matter. So he returned to Crotona, which was uh, close to his home, which was in Italy at the time, and started the, the Pythagorean school uh, of the Orphic Mysteries. And they had their own um, initiation uh, based on Indian initiation. Uh, and their own studies based on the trivium and quadrivium, which he himself put together. Now, later this evening, after we review a bit of the trivium, we, uh, continue with our discussion on the trivium, um, we'll discuss uh, how the quadrivium was put together by Pythagoras and how he brought it to a common denominator in the way that he uh, organized it, and it'll become self-evident as to how, uh, what a high level of, of thought he had been brought to through his trek through the mystery schools. And I guess that's a good segue. We, we've decided, uh, you and I, that we uh, might have one more interview, and this, this would be a good segue into a uh, a preview of the mystery schools tonight we're just going to continue with our our trivium and quadrivium uh, discussion which is the art and science of mind and matter uh, those both lead uh, to the development of our head thinking our brain thinking our critical and creative life but of course there's another aspect to life and that's our emotional life 
So without reference to the mystery schools, we, we can't complete the circle of our education. So the mystery schools really go to heart thinking, as I say, our emotional life. And one of the very important ingredients of that is the initiation through entheogens, through coming to know uh, whatever part of the mind it is that, that we go into. A lot of people have called it the unconscious, the subconscious, uh, the ethereal realm, who knows? All we know is that we can go in there, get a lot of information and insight that we really can't put into words. It's uh, uh, not that that rare an occasion not to be able to put things into words. For example, uh, just our the results of our five senses. To try to describe in words something that occurs every day, which is sight. Now, if you try to describe what sight is to a person who has all his other faculties, has his other uh, four senses, but he's blind and has been blind since birth, words are inadequate to describe this very mundane, ordinary, everyday thing. What is sight? So it, the same with, with all the senses. None of the senses could be described in conceptual terms, in words, to a person who's never had that particular faculty. So to think that uh, uh, the place that we go, th go to, the, the journeys that we take, uh, within theogens are, are uh, experiences that we can't put into, uh, into words is, is not to be uh, considered um, mysterious by just making that analogy to the, to the senses. There, there are many things that we cannot define. In fact, uh, not being able to define something is the essence of proof. Now, we'll get to the point where we'll be able to discern between proof and substantiation. Uh, but uh, we'll uh, get to that as we, as we go through some of these uh, uh, commentaries on the trivium. So, um, in our next session, we'll, uh, we'll distinguish the, uh, the cultures, uh, okay. how, how the, uh, mystery schools, um, began, um, cities, how, the, how the temple religion started to build cities around themselves. And it's from, uh, the, the person who belongs to a city, a civilian, which we now call a, a citizen, uh, this is what, what named its, uh, what, what lent its, uh, the, the origins to the word civilization. So there were city dwellers, and this became the culture of civilization. Now, to this day, we still have cultures among us that are what we call uncivilized, and, and that's a good description, but it's, it's also an emotionally charged word. And those are the cultures of the, the clan and the tribe who have never put together a temple religion to gather people from, a, from an area around them. 
Now, there's only one civilization, if you take it back to its, its genesis. And uh, that I'm going to call right here the civilization of Lemuria and the civilization of Atlantis. Now, we'll use those as, as uh, euphemistic terms that they just relate to something. But the, the more mature of those two civilizations, and I don't know if it's the oldest, I'm just saying that it's uh, at times a little bit more mature than the other, is the one I call Lemurian, and that is the Chinese civilization. Uh, the cities that they built up, uh, not necessarily around temples, but uh, as is often the case with, with a mature person, um, they, they want to have their time to themselves. And China has been known for this, not wanting to mix with, with the culture that's outside of its own realm. And the Atlantean uh, civilization is really the one that we belong to. We're a subculture of India. This, this is the culture that came out of India and spread westward for the last uh, oh, six and a half thousand years or so and has, has taken over the civilization of the world. And you can, you can trace it. You, all you have to do is follow uh, Pythagoras's uh, trip, his tour of the mystery schools backwards. Uh, the last one to do this of note was Alexander the Great. If you follow his path of conquest, it follows the, the path of Pythagoras back to India. When he was initiated in India, he comes back and brings what we call Greek civilization to that part of the world, but in fact it, it is the Atlantean civilization. And uh, it's this westward civilization toward the Atlantic Ocean is the reason I refer to this as Atlantean. But uh, from the Middle East up in through the southern part of Europe and then into Europe in general and then of course over to the Americas and now we're seeing these Atlanteans go home they're going home to India so they have uh, circled the globe with their ideas and if you look at our culture with an open mind which the trivium will help you to do you'll be able to see that virtually all of our concepts in religion, society, and science, all of them, have come from India. Now that there's enough uh, translation of Sanskrit in particular that's making its way to us, it's very easy to see if you just open your eyes to similarities. We are people of, of uh, pattern recognition. And if we look for similarities rather than differences, now the differences are promoted by various uh, uh, entities and uh, organizations within our culture. Yeah, and that and was this not look back there. That was the same idea that uh, we had behind astrotheology and shamanism was looking at the similarities. But I had seen a, a video recently. I think you had referred it to me. Uh, this doctor professor was discussing Sanskrit and the similarities. Would you talk a little bit about that? 
yes, his name was uh, Dr. Brown. I, I can't recall his, his first name. But that's exactly, he was a Sanskrit scholar. And um, that was one of the places that, that I, I came upon this idea of, of similarity rather than difference. And um, the Vedas, of which he, he was very familiar, uh, describe all the things that we know in Christianity. For example, the, the, uh, the Trinity. Um, in, in the Hindu scripture, uh, they have a trinity also, and it's made up of uh, the god of creation, the god of sustenance, the god of life. In other words, uh, creation is birth, the god of sustenance is the god of life, and the god of, of death is the end of life. And then, of course, you come back to the god of, of uh, creation again, uh, Brahma is his name, and uh, you experience rebirth, and then that period of sustenance, which is life, and then the period of death. Now, to the Vedic scholars, this is what they saw around them all the time. This was when they chant Om, Om, we've all heard that, especially the, the Buddhist uh, monks as right. they chant together. It's a very powerful right. sound, and they it's call like that creating the universe with that or something it's called the sound of the universe because that's what the universe is it's birth life death birth life death so everything you observe is is that action and um they the vedic uh, poets who who made these observations decided well this is too abstract so what we have to do in order to understand this more deeply is is to personify it. So we'll we'll name the create uh, the the uh, principle of creation. We'll name it a person named Brahma. The principle of sustenance we'll name um, Krishna. Um, there was actually a, a another name originally. It just doesn't come to me. But finally. The principle of dissolution or death is named Shiva. And, and then they made up personal stories about this. Well, our egos, man's ego, can more easily take in uh, this idea of a personal story. And that's where these gods were created. Now, if you come forward to the Christian Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, you can actually get more by... By the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, by the way, is, is more akin to the aspects of the trivium. But the word God in English, just God, G-O-D. G is the principle of generation. O is the principle of operation. D is the principle of dissolution. So it's it's the same trinity that was put together by the by the Vedic uh, poets. Generation is birth, operation is sustenance or life, and D is death or dissolution. And there's our connection to to the Atlanteans, and that's only one. 
when we get to uh, science, which we'll get to in, in, in the last section that we speak of the trivium this evening, uh, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit further. So um, what distinguishes the civilization from the clan tribe uh, culture is man's relationship to land. For example, um, in civilization, uh, land is, is looked at as being for man. That is, land is for man. In the uncivilized, so-called, uh, culture, man is from the land. So the idea of ownership or property is not present there. In civilization, the idea of, of uh, ownership and property is present. So the Lemurians, and this is why I call them more... Uh, more mature, uh, use that as a filter. The Chinese would, would look out amongst their uh, uh, neighbors to the west and decide if they were civilized, if they were starting to gather into a city, not into a tribe or a clan, but into a city, taking diverse members of tribes and clans and, and making them part of the owners of the land. They've got this idea of ownership. So, um, uh, as we go along through um, civilization, we see that uh, this idea of, of uh, a property and the expansion of property is, is uh, taken, up, taken up with more enthusiasm by, through India. And they moved westward. And actually, the westward movement is, is not an accident. Of course, China was, was to the east, but uh, uh, westward is the easiest way to navigate uh, over water and through, through the desert. You only travel at night through the desert. And it's much easier to steer on a western star than it is on an eastern star because the star can be higher up in the, in the sky. You can follow one star uh, through the night uh, with a higher declination, it's called. It can be higher in the sky, and then you follow it into the into the uh, western horizon. Uh, eastern, it cannot it it can come up, but you can't follow it up into the sky. It doesn't. It uses its usefulness after a certain degree up, and and I alluded to that with the uh, with the five three four uh, Pythagorean triangle on the uh, ship and mast that was used by ancient mariners. But at any rate, this is, this is, that's just one tie-in as to why the, the migration was westward. But about six and a half thousand years ago, this idea of, of uh, ruling the world came into someone's mind, and that was the big idea. That was the, the enterprise that was coming to be. And uh, they used some, some of their knowledge of, of geometry to decide that they could, they could tame this globe, which they they knew it to be a, a sphere, uh, by symbolically squaring it off by by making a cube of it. And uh, when you have squared something, you've standardized it in the the terms of of one of the aspects of the mystery schools, the uh, the Freemasons. And this is symbolized, of course, when you graduate, say, from high school, 
uh, your round head is put under a square board and you're now a square person. You're now, you can take your square head. <laughs> you're a blockhead. <laughs> you're a blockhead. You're, you're a brick in the wall. Uh, Pink Floyd um, made allusions to that in one of their Another brick in the wall, right. Well, they, they made, they made uh, uh, an entire uh, uh, album called The Wall. Right, and, and, and is, the lyrics are, all in all, you're just another brick in the wall. Another brick in the wall. And this is, this, is, this is, see, you're being standardized. You're being standardized by these Atlanteans. And uh, Atlanteans I'm using as a term because it doesn't have an emotional charge to us, like Freemasons or Zionists or Illuminati, Illuminati and on and on and on which are all just front men for um, whoever these people are. And in, in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter who they are. What matters is what they hold in their mind that you can come to hold in your mind and either decide to continue to be a block in the wall or decide you don't want to, uh, to build the wall anymore and uh, become your own person. So at any rate, we're going to uh, to study this um, a little bit more in our in our next uh, session. Um, and right now we're living, as I say, we're living through this uh, the final stage of of squaring the globe. Uh, we're putting a, a cube on it, and the word that we're using for it nowadays, so that we can blame one of the front men rather than the people who are actually doing it. If we want to blame anyone, it's called Zionism. That's what Zionism is. It's, it's squaring, it's cubing the sphere of the world to a standardized plan. So, um, I don't think a lot of people will be able to follow my argument uh, until they've had their mind open a little bit more, until we go through a little bit more of the trivium and those Listeners who are more curious can can take up uh, the study on their own. Toward the end of the program, I'll uh, I'll provide a little uh, package that I'll I'll be happy to send to people that that gives the sources, gives the various books and recorded lectures, and uh, some websites that you can uh, follow to to get started on this on this little journey. And uh, when we come back to this idea of uh, of Lemuria and and Atlantis, um, we can look at it with less prejudice. Uh, so that's going to be the uh, that's going to be the goal between now and then. So right now, why don't we uh, just get back to a little bit more of the review of the fallacies? Because this this is the um, the one part the the one of the four parts in in uh, logic, we're, we're in logic now, in the discipline of logic, uh, that is applicable almost immediately. And this goes directly to critical thinking. So we'll take our little trek tonight from critical thinking and finish up with uh, creative thinking before we move on to the uh, review of the quadrivium. So we left off uh, last time with ad ignorantium. Uh, tonight, let's let's start with uh, appeal to emotion, which is what I'm trying to do 
uh, I'm, I'm trying to eliminate the, the emotion uh, when next we meet so that we can get the emotion out of the way and, uh, and see what the argument that, that I'll be presenting uh, is at its core. So uh, an appeal to emotion is the attempt to gain su support through one's emotion rather than the objective substance of the argument. Now, here's, a, here's one example. And before I go on to the example, um, I want to say that whenever you get into a study that's as, as abstract as what we're talking about here, how to, how to train the mind, uh, you need a lot of examples. You, you need the substance of, of what we're trying, trying to say. In other words, we need the explanation uh, in the abstract, and then we need instances, we need examples before the student really gets it. So we'll go through a number of case studies uh, with, with each one of these. And if you don't get a particular, uh, if you don't get the concept clear in your mind in your own studies, this, this, is, the, uh, this is the path you take. You start looking for examples rather than trying to, to go through the abstraction itself. So appeal to emotion. Here's, here's an example. I need a raise in salary because my children are economically deprived. Uh, rather than I deserve a raise because the increase in because of the increase in productivity my innovations have brought to the firm. Now the first the first sentence was appealing to to the boss's emotion. And it, it's used a lot. I mean, just just look at the news, and you'll you'll see people trying to appeal your emotion all the time, especially with commercials. But also, it's getting uh, it's making its way more and more into what we call uh, reporting the news. Uh, so, what, whenever you you feel your your heart strings being tugged, and it doesn't seem to fit the situation, uh, give yourself a little time out and see if this is uh, an appeal strictly to your emotion. And that doesn't mean you have to write it off right then. Now you can lead a question, uh, uh, get into a series of questions to see if this is just the, the motivating factor, and that's usually what emotions are. Uh, they motivate and give us our satisfactions in life. But if there's not a, uh, an objective and me more meaningful appeal, then you you can, uh, with confidence, leave that particular argument, an appeal to emotion. Now the next one is uh, related. It's called special pleading, and this is typically referring to God's will. Now this is removing the arguer one step away, so that you can't attack the arguer for his argument, because it's God's will. And uh, whenever you remove yourself one step, uh, you're insulating yourself. Uh, one of the things that we can all relate to here, those of us who, who earn a living, is uh, the IRS, Internal Revenue Service, is demonized. And when in fact it's the Congress that, uh, that passed the uh, Internal Revenue Service Act. Uh, 
they they're the ones that passed our, our taxation our our uh, federal taxation but they they set up this um, straw man in effect to take all the heat so whenever you go to your congressman and start complaining about taxes he just says well what can i do it's it's uh, god's will it's the irs that's uh, that's bringing this misery on to you so i'll i'll do i'll do what i can uh, see you next election so there's the special pleading you're you're injecting another party uh into the mix of the argument and uh, the next one is called begging the question it's uh it's uh latin name is petitio principii and this is assuming an answer in the way the question is phrased uh, it's like a leading question or using the question at issue to reach a conclusion at that same issue for example you you walk into a bank and uh, go up to a loan officer and and uh, say you want to make an application for a loan and the loan officer says well you don't have any history with us uh, I, I can't really extend any consideration and the man says well I thought of that so I brought my neighbor along and he'll tell you what a what a reliable individual I am and the banker says well I don't know your neighbor and you say well that's all right I've known him for a number of years and I can vouch for his reliability so <laughs> there you are going in circles this this is the the type of thing that you that you see in a very uh, in a much more subtle fashion but that that's what you're looking for is is the same argument repeated over and over you'll also see this in in dictionary definitions um, what is uh, what is mortification well mortification uh, has to do with with uh, the terms of death with uh, uh, those things that relate to death now you're you're using a different word but you're still close enough mortification is is just latin or the romance language of of death so what you're trying to do is not use the same term when when you're when you're defining and you can go through the the, the uh, dictionary especially more modern dictionaries and see uh, circular reasoning begging the question just just all over the place uh, you'll you'll go to a particular term and you'll have to go to two or three other uh, different concepts before you finally understand what it means um, let's see a non sequitur the Latin term for it does not follow the logic falls down um, it's uh, it's cold today well it was cold yesterday now that may have a seasonal component to it it seems to follow but if you're getting into a uh, uh, an in-depth analysis just going back to the appearance 
is is not enough to bring forth validity or new knowledge. Uh, non sequiturs is very subtle. Um, you have to to find a term within it that that relates to neither one of the concepts that that you have in in the statement or in the argument. Uh, this one takes a lot of uh, a, a lot of study and and a lot of uh, examples before you you start to uh, understand it. Um, so I won't try to get into it too much uh, here. Uh, the next one I like just because it's musical. It, its Latin name is called post hoc ergo propter hoc, which liter literally literally means it happened after, so it was caused by. So this is the confusion of cause and correlation. Uh, for example, a, a comet appearing in the sky coincides with the start of a drought. And of right. course, it's mistakenly thought to be the cause of the drought. So that's a coincidence. But um, particularly in ancient times, the, the star watchers came upon this quite a bit. Uh, this is the basis of superstition. It's like the uh, U.S. being attacked on 911 and the television evangelists would say, uh, that's because of uh, homosexuals and gay marriage. Yeah, there's a good one. I mean, that's propaganda, just, just out and out. Come visit us because we, we have an agenda here. And, and we'll, uh, we'll try to help you um, lead a less sinful life. But that's exactly it. In fact, that's, that's the basis of superstition. Um, something happens, you know, a, a mirror breaks in your house, and you're going to have seven years bad luck. Or you're, you're uh, rolling craps at a casino, and uh, you've noticed that every... every time you roll a, a four, you get your point. You'll roll another four before you crap out. So all you concentrate on is that four. Well, all this time that you're concentrating on it, of course, you're losing money uh, right and left. You're, you're not playing the, uh, the odds. You're, you're playing the post hoc ergo propter hoc. Now, I believe this other one we've already touched on to a degree, it's, uh, it's the one aspect of the Hegelian dialectic. In our last conversation, this was the aspect uh, of controlled opposition or staging opposition to an issue in order to claim the prearranged outcome, which had been tested by objective debate. For example, the contemporary American political structure, which declares having two independent parties, but in fact, has only one with a common agenda, which up to this period of time has been big government, more and more big government. Um, controlled opposition is being used extensively in this country with these uh, with these mega churches, these churches that are not affiliated with with an Orthodox Christian church. They they have a large um, auditorium type facilities. And when you go in, they, they ask you to start going to a Bible study. And these Bible studies will 
almost invariably have eight people as members. And um, one of the one of the lay instructors will gather this group of eight people and start a, a conversation regarding the Bible. Well, unbeknownst to the other seven, there's one in there that's a plant. And he's working with the instructor. By sowing the seeds of where the instructor wants to take them at coffee breaks, uh, periods of time when the instructor isn't around, the plant will come up with whatever the agenda might be. And of course, the agenda is always to uh, to have you tithe, tithe 10 to 15 percent by coming to an agreement, a pre-arranged agreement. So when you see your, your supposed um, discussion group all coming to the same conclusion, you think, well, there's truth to be had here because we've all independently come to this to this one outcome. And of course they were led by the by the plant, by the shill. And uh, that oddly enough came about from the Delphi uh, technique which was developed back in the 1950s uh, to have uh, think tank organizations, the Rand Corporation, uh, Rockefeller Foundation, whatnot, uh, come to a consensus and uh, they didn't want an input. They wanted the, the parties, the eight parties, to be separate. And, and when they did start to see a pattern emerging in consensus, then they could, they could follow that strand wherever it was leading. And this just shows how you can take something designed for one purpose and think 180 degrees away and apply it for another purpose. So that's controlled opposition, and, and uh, that's one thing that we can be aware of whenever we turn on the tube to watch the news, because you'll, you'll see the debate, supposed debate, going on. And uh, it's heading them off at the pass. Well, surely these, our leaders can, can do better than this, and as soon as they see enough opposition going in, in the other direction, they send a show out there. Um, one of the men uh, that's currently playing that role, from what I understand, is uh, Ron Paul. He says all the right things, but of course, what can one man do? But whenever we start to to have uh, an insight that we should go in that direction, he's he's put out there to voice as our voice and it soon dies down, and they go on to the next one. Uh, healthcare is one of those at the moment. Um, straw man, we've, okay, equivocation. Now, last session you, um, you mentioned half-truths. Uh, half-truths fall within this logical fallacy. It's restatement or misstatement using a term in two different senses in the same argument. It's also suppressed evidence or half-truths. And this is the most subtle form of bearing false witness against one's neighbor, really. Uh, one out of four children are 
born in, in uh, China. Uh, I'm sorry, one out of four children born are Chinese. Uh, Mrs. Jones is getting ready to have her fourth child. Jan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> okay. I guess I was just so entranced and kind of just listening, I just let it go for a minute. <laughs> okay. <you know? laughs> All right. <laughs> okay, well, equivocation, again, can be a very subtle uh, subtle argument. Uh because we don't know what's being hidden. Uh, when you're given a half-truth, we all have the tendency to, to want resolution. So as soon as, as we resonate with, with uh, what we think is the truth, we, we cease being critical. Uh, and this, as you can see, can tie into the, the emotional argument. Now there are there are other subsets of this. Another one is uh, the use of weasel, weasel words and phrases, such as, um, we haven't seen this for a while, but using the term police action for war to get around limitations on pres presidential power. Now, this was used as an, as an example when there was such a thing as limitations on presidential power. Uh, so that's one of the important arts of politicians is to find new names for institutions which under old names have become uh, odious. Uh, we had discussed last week uh, Bernays coming up with the idea of, of public relations uh, to be used in place of propaganda. So this is the uh, equivocation or the subset of equivocation. Another subset of this of this very often used uh, fallacy is argumentum ad nauseum, and that's convince them that what is repeated incessantly is true. In other words, wear them down, like filibuster, mass media, re re uh, repetitive advertising, or what we're experiencing right now with the propaganda for healthcare here in the US. So this gives you a small arsenal of uh, logical fallacies. They're, they're very easily found in introduction to, to logic books. There's, there's a number of logic books out there that carry these. Also on the internet, um, Carl Sagan, in fact, in his book, The Demon Infested World, had a list in there that he called and I think this goes right to the heart of it. He called it the baloney detection kit. So when any of these <laughs> fallacies come up, it's it's a red light, you know, baloney's coming your way. Now, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle um, called his list of fallacies um, the refutation of the sophists. Now, the sophists were a, a, a school of thought in, in his time, in Aristotle's time, that... Uh, didn't believe in anything. They they thought that truth could not be could not be ascertained. That the only thing that you could do is is to live a life of advantage. That arguing didn't was not because truth could not be known. Arguing could not be used as a method to come 
to a true statement. So they used argumentation as, as a means of winning a disputation. They didn't care about coming to truth. They just came uh, uh, to a position where they wanted to win the argument. And they're the ones that came up with or, or, or utilized many of these uh, logical fallacies. And you can see in the American judicial system, that's still the case. Uh, theoretically, the, the trial is, is to come to the truth, to come to justice. But in fact, it's about uh, winning, winning your case. And the person who can use the fallacies most uh, adroitly is generally the winner of, of the case. So it's, uh, it's uh, prevalent through all ages. Now, as I say, there's not one particular list of fallacies, but once you you become conversant with some of these, uh, you can see the fallacies in everyday language and uh, entertainment, uh, so-called news and so forth. But you can also question a lot of the assumptions, particularly in the fields of history and science as they've been presented to us. Um, by by applying these logical fallacies. So now we'll go on to uh, the next section, the third of the four subjects, which is the rules of definition. Now the object here is is to devise a method by which to isolate the essence of a word or concept. And it was uh, in the West that the philosopher Socrates, who was one of Plato's teachers, uh, came to be known as the father of definition. He said uh, that his emphatic prescription to clear the muddle, contradiction, and confusions of men's minds was to define your terms. Terms, as he used it, was, was words. So his idea was before you started an argument or a disputation, that the two parties or the parties that are that are going to be involved define the words before they got into the argument. In other words, define the word justice. Uh, define the word cruel and so forth. And when you come to an impasse in an argument, when you're when you're actually coming to the to the idea of of, uh, of looking for truth, uh, when, when there is an equivocation between two people, that is, one person is using a word in one sense and another is using it in another, you stop the argument, the argument per se, and define the, the term, come to an agreement about the term uh, as it relates to that, that argument. So, um, Aristotle comes along uh, after Socrates, and with his scientific mind, decides that he wants to make this uh, methodical. He wants to make a system of it. So he comes up with the uh, with the formulation that uh, a term must be stated in positive terms, describing what a concept is, not what it is not, or possible. For example, um, I'd already made mention of this that. Uh, Innocence. Innocence is a positive term, 
but the definition of necessity has to be negative. Innocence is the absence of guilt. Uh, guilt is a positive term that is defined positively. Um, it is the commission of an act, uh, usually a, a, a cruel or unjust act. Um, freedom. Freedom is a positive term defined by lack of constraint. So it's a positive term that must be must be given in a negative description. Uh, man. Man is known as the rational animal. Now, he's not known as the, the laughing animal or the animal that's always in heat or the animal with the most dexterous opposing digit on his hand. Even though he is all these things, he is the one, the only one, that is rational. That is, uh, going back to uh, the definition of, of rational is, is he who can see and use ratios. And of course, I, I think I've mentioned that there is no other, there is no other animal that, that shows evidence of being able to do that. And all, all the, that stems from being able to see and use a ratio. So that, that is a positive term, of the, uh, a positive description of a positive term, man. So he, uh, Aristotle also came to, after that uh, recommendation, he says, you want to seek a term, a, a reckoning, which is not too broad or too narrow or too circular or too vague for the term. Uh, too broad, too generalized, too narrow, uh, getting too much into the specifics and disregarding the genera. Too circular, which goes to petitio. You don't want to use a, a circular, uh, use the same word to try to prove that word. Or too vague, which is... Uh, the fallacy of uh, half-truths, the, uh, the fallacy of equivocation. So you use all those fallacies in, this, in these uh, tips, in these ways of coming to a, uh, a definition. Uh, the best way I've found is because we have such well-researched dictionaries is to start with the dictionary term. And if you're lucky enough, go back to a dictionary that's uh, a number of decades old, back in the 30s and especially pre-1920, and compare the two if it's a, uh, if it's a concept that's, that's important to you. So, um, as we go along into argument, we'll find that we'll be able to define not just individual words, but entire propositional sentences, and finally, whole arguments. And our inconsistency, our, our mental inconsistency through practice will be replaced by clarity. So the final two uh, uh, segments of, of logic 
are the rules of deductive reasoning and a guide for inductive reasoning. And th those are pretty abstract statements, but they really just refer to what the, what the mind, what the brain does. Uh, the mind just mentally takes things apart and mentally puts things together. That's all it does. Uh, it, it does nothing else uh, other than become emotional. But uh, <laughs> but when we're when we're in analysis and synthesis, which are just other words for deductive and inductive, uh, that's all it does. So from the base of immediate logical inference, which derives a conclusion from a single preceding statement or implication, uh, Aristotle again came up with a a three-termed argument, which he called a syllogism, which in Greek just means connected discourse. But we do this all the time. We we see uh, uh, a wild animal, let's say. We we see a bear in the woods. Well, that that is uh, part of a family that we already know as a predator. So. We're, we're putting a general principle of predator together with this, say, fishing, this, this bear that's uh, fishing the stream. So, of course, we see he's a predator and he, he belongs in that, in that category. So we're, we're putting things together. We have a general principle and we're putting together a specific instance. So the direction of this way of thinking is from specific to general. Um, Sherlock Holmes, famous for, for deducing by seeing a, 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 a scuff on a man's shoe at a particular height, for example. He can tell that he was uh, in a particular room that had, uh, had a door was that, that opened to that height, and that's what scuffed his shoe as, as he came up and jammed his shoe under the door. So we know that that objects scuff leather. So that's the general statement. Then the deduction is that he was in that room that, uh, that Holmes is trying to, to place him in, say, at the time of the murder, which it invariably is. Uh, this is going from uh, genera to specifics, which is also part of where we just came from, which was part of definition. In definition, uh, where possible, we look for um, genera, which is to place a term in a, in, a, in a category that we already can recognize that it belongs to, just as we saw the bear uh, must be part of the predator genera. The bear was the species. Uh, when we are working with um, concept definition with word definition, we call that the differentia. We call the species the differentia. In other words, it's the, it's the word that fits in the general category, but the thing that makes it different from every other uh, member of its category, of its genera, is this specific thing, like the differentia of man is, is rational, that he can see and uh, utilize ratios. So that's the differentia. Or in 
rules of analysis, that's the species, general and specific. Now, uh, the, the rules of the syllogism and the rules of deduction are thoroughly known. I mean, they're exhaustively known. So when you get into the study of, of an introduction to logic, when you get to this particular uh, area, deduction, uh, it's the most technical. Uh, the way a, a, an argument is put together, the, the syntax of the argument are important. Uh, if you put an argument together in a particular way, there's, there's almost no out but to come to a, to a valid or a truthful conclusion. Now, the, um, the syllogism, which, as I say, is, is pretty technical, can be, we can give an instance of it and see how it works. And the classical syllogism is, and most of us have heard this, there are three statements. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. So from the general statement of all men are mortal to the specific statement that here, here's another man and his name happens to be Socrates. Therefore, this man named Socrates is mortal. And the structure of this is if, then, therefore. So if we restated this, all men are, are mortal, Socrates is a man, Socrates is not mortal. Just from that structure, we can see that all men are mortal. This man named Socrates is a man. This man, Socrates, is immortal. Uh, the logic does not follow. So we have to keep going back until, until we get the structure right. And of course, we start with a valid general term and a valid uh, specific term and we should be able to come out with the with the proper answer if then therefore uh, this generally leads to what in philosophy is called certainty when you're thinking deductively you come to a certain conclusion and and that's that's a dubious word certain but in philosophy when you understand the limitations uh, that it puts on itself as to what certainty is, which means that it's uh, contextual, you, within a certain context, all these things hold. Uh, and that again goes to some of the technicality within, within deductive reasoning. And deductive reasoning generally leads you to that uh, that idea of certainty through a number, uh, a spectrum of, of evidence. The first uh, part of that spectrum is that the conclusion might be possible. In other words, there is some amount of evidence for the conclusion, but not a preponderance of evidence. And this is something else we've, we've heard in, in uh, courts and in, in legal situations. The preponderance of evidence is not there. The next level before certainty is called probable. 
uh, in this part of the spectrum, there is a preponderance or a majority of evidence for the conclusion. And then, of course, the final level is that of certainty. And, and here's where the context comes in. All of the gathered evidence points to the conclusion and there is no evidence against it. So the evidence is conclusive and theoretically certain. Uh, the term theoretical didn't come come into use until the next mode of thinking, the mode beyond philosophic, uh, came into prominence. And of course, that was the scientific mode, where everything must be demonstrated. And all uh, witnesses to that demonstration come to the same conclusion. Well, until you come upon various facts, you're, you're not you're not trying a person trying to come to uh, a specific a specific conclusion about about guilt or innocence in science. You're trying to come to a generalization, a general conclusion. And until evidence uh, comes up against your theory, that holds. But it's open to more evidence coming in unlike in in philosophy where you where you run up against this wall of certainty just because evidence is all for and there is no evidence again against so now we come to the the guide for inductive reasoning and the reason it's called a guide is uh, it's about generalizing and we really don't know what how concepts are put together we don't know how we uh, Aristotle gave us an inkling that we see an object, we form a concept in our mind, and then we form a, a means of communicating like a word. But we really don't know how we come upon this concept. Now, if you're part of the entheogenic way of thinking, if you're part of the psychedelic school of thought, we know how these come come into being. We're, we're shown, we're told, the medicines speak to us, the universe speaks to us, whatever. Then we go back and, uh, and deduce from there, yes, this insight that was given to me can be proven in this specific instance. But because uh, uh, logicians don't, don't hold up credence, or at least they don't hold up public credence to uh, in theogenic in insight, uh, it's it's not part of our everyday vernacular. So all we can say about induction, or really the art of generalizing, of validly generalizing, is that we come upon a, an observation, an observation with one of our five senses, and we see that it appears to be a feature in reality. Uh, like one of the the first uh, applications of generalizing or, or of, of uh, explaining the theory of generalizing was to look at axiomatic synthesis which defines self-evident irreducible axioms like existence, causality, and consciousness which was known to the ancients, or um, a geometric form. A circle is self-evident, 
square is self-evident. Whoever looks, whoever is sighted and looks at that has and is rational uh, will always agree that those those things are self-evident. Now, existence, although I've, I've given a, a definition for it, in the final analysis, it's just like uh, it's just like trying to describe red to a person who's never been sighted. All you can do is point. Now, what is existence? It's that. Uh, what is consciousness? It, it's somewhere within the skull. That, that's the best place to to point. Uh, causality. That seems to be uh, an action that causes a lower level action, but we really can't give it a, a, a definition. So the next uh, method of generalizing was, was what was called uh, perfect or enumerate, uh, enumerative uh, induction, which was hypothetically to observe every instance of a phenomenon before advancing a general statement of principle. So that's essentially saying you, you have to know everything before knowing anything. So enumerative synth synthesis really just leads to probabilities. You see a number of instances, so you make, you make the statement. And this is really where, where science uh, took off from. How, how do we, how do we uh, test ourselves a little bit more intensely so that we can come up with a, uh, a better a better statement and we'll always leave the door open by call, calling it a theory yes this appears to be true with all all the indications and evidence we have now but because we have a, a realization that we don't know everything we can't say that it's definitive it's 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 true enough that that's what science really is it's true enough uh, for this particular uh, task or this particular uh, uh, set of of uh, concepts that are usable. So in science, of course, we have theories rather than certainties. So you can see the advancement in the modes of knowledge. Uh, it was uh, Francis Bacon who hinted at what the scientific method was. And it's the scientific method which is really our greatest uh, method of generalizing. And the scientific method consists of, of four actions. Uh, the first one is to observe. The second one is to generate hypotheses. Uh, the third is to extrapolate. And the fourth is to, to demonstrate an experiment, a repeatable experiment. So, uh, the first segment is to observe reality, to try to explain a phenomenon, uh, a physical phenomenon within the universe. So we define that uh, objective. Secondly, we go to attempted explanations by generating hypotheses. Now, hypotheses are generated by uh, analogy. We, we find the uh, similarities between the phenomena, the new phenomena, and known phenomena. And we come up with a, a number of hypotheses, sometimes not even related. This is just uh, uh, blue sky thinking. And uh, 
from the most likely hypothesis that we've generated uh, after a thought process. We extrapolate from that most likely hypothesis to come to a, uh, an even more refined understanding. We can liken this to generating a blueprint. A blueprint for what? Well, it's a blueprint for designing an experiment. And uh, as we refine the experiment, the blueprint for the experiment, and we think we're ready to carry out the experiment in the real world, we, we perform it. We perform the experiment, and then we make sure that it, it is a repeatable experiment, that other parties, other people can, can uh, uh, devise this experiment. Uh, and that's how we prove our scientific theory. From this experiment, we come up with a statement, a written statement of theory. So this is proven to be the most uh, efficacious way of, of using the guidelines for inductive thinking um, that, we've, that we've devised. And in the modern world, you, you can see this reflected all over the place. Um, one of them is in medicine. Uh, a physician will examine the patient then he will uh, take the, the uh, symptoms that he's seen and diagnose from those symptoms as to what the malady might be. Thirdly, he, uh, he uses a process called prognosis, which is to take from the most likely diagnosis what the treatment might be. It might be a drug therapy or it might be a surgery, depending on, on what his diagnosis was. Part of the prognosis is also to, to, in his own mind, determine what the efficacy of that treatment might be. And then finally, he carries out the treatment. Now, notice that in the scientific method and in medicine, we went from reality, observation or examination, to uh, a hypothesis, or in medicine, that's uh, diagnosis. And from the hypothesis, we went to the extrapolation of the most likely, um, from the most likely hypothesis. In medicine, we went to prognosis from the most likely diagnosis. And finally, uh, down to action by, by either uh, uh, performing the experiment or treating the patient. Now let's look at where we, what this process really is. It's the process of going from reality from observation to a process completely in mentality, which is hypothesis formation, or in the case of the physician, uh, diagnosis. And next down, we go to uh, extrapolation from the most likely hypothesis. And this is a completely mental exercise also. Prognosis, likewise with the physician. It's a completely mental exercise that's more focused than the mental exercise just above it. And finally, we, we take it back into the real world, into an experiment or to a treatment. So the process that, that is, is uh, uh, common to both of them is going from reality to, let's say, a shotgun view of mentality of our own mind from, from whatever we saw in from whatever we observed in the real world, to a rifle shot, which is the second, uh, the, the third level down, the second mental exercise, 
uh, that's the rifle shot. That's the one that's more focused. And and uh, finally, back to reality to uh, take action. So this is, uh, if if you look at it with without the the two steps in the middle of of uh, of the uh, uh, shotgun mental exercise and the rifle mental ex exercise. Uh, you can actually break this down into three steps, which again takes us back to the trivium. Uh, with grammar, we take observations of the real world and, and put together uh, a body of knowledge, of similar knowledge. In logic, it's a completely mental process. We, we take what we've learned from our body of knowledge and brought understanding. Now, coming to an understanding is completely is is a completely mental exercise and then we express it in the real world or utilize it in the real world as wisdom or rhetoric wisdom remember is is uh, the use of knowledge and understanding in the real world so that pretty much covers uh, the areas of of the trivium and uh, once we have we have trained our minds or come to a a general understanding a conversant understanding of the trivium we can move on from the methods of of training and using the mind uh, uh, critically and creatively we can now move on to the to the realm of extension or the quadrivium now the quadrivium the the four uh, classical subjects in the quadrivium are mathematics, geometry, music, and astronomy. Now those are our, our modern uh, methods of looking uh, at it. Um, Pythagoras put this group of subjects together, or at least he's given credit, I must uh, add. He's given credit in our culture, in our version of Western culture as being the one who put these together. And the common denominator that he used was number. Now, uh, another aspect that's been hidden from us uh, over the years is that of number. We, we generally think of number as being ways to count. And that's, that's all it is. Um, you count out a measurement. Um, or you count out a probability. But I had already mentioned in our last session that, that numbers have qualities. And they're not just for counting. They're for making analogies. For example, one is, is unity. Um, two is the first division. Three is the first number, beginning, middle, end. Four is the first encompassment, uh, the box. Uh, five is is the first uh, number of 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 life uh, five in a lot of cultures marries male and female uh, for example what it's made up of it's it's uh, factors two and three uh, also means male and female two is female in a lot of cultures and three is male and the opposite um, it's it's the thing that makes up water a water molecule, an H2O molecule, uh, 
uh, always has uh, an angle that would make up a pentagon. So a, wa uh, a water in its in its liquid state makes up a uh, a solid uh, geometric figure called an icosahedron, which is made up of a series of, of uh, pentagons, and that this is where the water comes in. Uh, the makes up the corners of the, the pentagons. But this is why water is called in its liquid form a, a fluid crystal. Uh, again, getting back to five as uh, that which brings about life. Uh, fives are found in apples, flowers, hands, and feet. Uh, one of the interesting points here does not have to do necessarily with, with uh, life, but it's the planet Venus, the goddess of love and beauty, uh, draws a five-fold pattern uh, around Earth every eight years. And, and we see this symbol uh, in a lot of places. It's, it's the pentacle, the pentagram inside a, a circle. And that is, that's to show the, the path of Venus when it meets up with Earth. Uh, every 584 days, it comes close to Earth, and over a period of eight years, it forms that star pattern in a in a inside a circle, and this is a a symbol of the United States Air Force, for example. So we see that in there. Uh, the next uh, number is six, and it's the per first perfect number. Now, the uh, the idea of number in the quadrivium is that we're explaining what the qualities of the quantities are. And six is the is the first uh, perfect number. It's factors, which are part of their qualities, the things that divide into it, uh, all add up to six. Uh, the first three digits, one times six, and two times three are six. But you add those up, one, two, three, the first three integers, and you come up with six. And that's the first perfect, what's called the first perfect number. There's only one perfect number between 1 and 10. There's only one perfect number between 10 and 100. That would be 28, the number 28. And there's one perfect number between 100 and 1,000, and so forth. Uh, so these are the qualities in mathematics. This is what properly we should be uh, taught when we're taught the quadrivium, the qualities, the quantities, the story behind the number itself. Now, number, math, um, exists outside of space and time. So number just refers to itself outside of space and time. It's an abstraction. It's a human abstraction. Uh, and this uh, idea of number relating to itself goes to the next three subjects. Geometry is number in space. Music, or actually harmonic theory, is number in time. And astronomy, or really what we might more properly call cosmology, is number in space and time. So this is how Pythagoras, let's say, um, integrated those four subjects in that they all relate to number. They're all measurable. When we get to geometry, we can, we can measure as we did with the Pythagorean triangle, uh, the numbers that make it up. And we can relate these numbers to all uh, geometric uh, patterns and symbols. 
so this is number in space. We we can find edges and faces and and vertices of of uh, polygons, for example, that are geometric uh, shapes. Next, we go to harmonic theory, and uh, this is number in time or interval rather than space. So there are only so many um, of all sounds that can be made in, in the various uh, uh, in, in the various vibrations that are harmonic and they're the the uh, octaves. There are eight eight notes within the octave and they're all separated by a uh, by a space, and that's that's uh, a space of interval, a space of time, and uh, this is what we're measuring when we're measuring harmonics. Uh, all the other sounds that can be made in the other various frequencies uh, are discordant, so the the harmonies are concordant within each octave. Uh, there are six other divisions, the, the, the fifth, the fourth, the ninth, which is a whole tone, nine-eighths. It's the study of uh, fractions within time. And finally, we get to the study of, uh, of cosmology, where we marry space and time. And I already made mention of that by, uh, by describing Venus to you. Uh, by forming that that pinnacle every every eight years, when we when we have a synod, when we have a we have we come closest to Venus, that's called a synod. Uh, if we follow that over a period of eight Earth years, we we have that uh, that geometric figure of the pinnacle, and it's married to that interval of eight years. So. This is where you get the, the idea of space and time. Uh, there are all sorts of um, concordances in our solar system, for example, that the ancients knew of, this, this being only one. Uh, another concordance or, or uh, observation that they made was that the mean orbit, that is, the, all the planets travel in a in an ellipse, but when you calculate the mean orbit or, or the circular orbit around the Sun, you'll see, for example, that the planet Mercury uh, relates to the size of the Earth in the same proportion that the orbit of the planet Mercury relates to the size of the Earth orbit. So the orbit and the physical sphere itself have the same ratio to one another. And there are various ratios uh, around the solar, uh, solar system that, that were uh, well known and observed through the millennia. Another being uh, that of uh, the orbits of Jupiter and Saturn. Uh, they form a six-sided star, um, a hexagram, derived from a hexagram. and. Uh, uh, there are far more. There's relationships between Earth and the Moon and so on and so forth. Well, when um, Isaac Newton came to study these things, uh, I remember when I was in school and I was taught that he was observing an apple falling from a tree, 
and the idea of the laws of gravity came to him. And I could never make the connection as to what that had to do with anything. And what he was doing was imagining a pulling force at a distance. In other words, he, he imagined the earth pulling the apple. Well, I still couldn't make that connection. He was aware of all of these coincidences in the solar system, all these geometric patterns as they related over time. And he looked for the common, there was something that was, that was making these patterns and uh, putting these, these, uh, mu this music of the spheres together. And he knew what those relationships were. This, this is the music of the spheres along with the geometry of the spheres. And what he found was, was this ratio, this squaring ratio, that, that the, if you imagine a pulling force, that force decreases by the square of the distance. And uh, in, in the other direction, it increases by a simple square. If something is 10 units away, it, it has a particular uh, attractive force. When you move that to 20 units away, you multiply 10 times 10. In other words, it's, it's twice as far, but the force is, is, is one-tenth rather than one-half. It's one-tenth of what it is. And this all coincided with the geometry that he, these coincidental geometries that he observed in the solar system. So, there, so, yeah. so what you're saying is that uh, the apple isn't a metaphor for the mushroom? Uh, well, it could be. Uh, I think that, uh, that he was known to, to have partaken uh, of direct knowledge. He was known to have, uh, have experimented with inductive thought processes. Uh, no, I, I think he actually saw the apple, but that's not to say that he didn't gain the insight of of, of putting those age-old observations together uh, with with the help uh, of the plants of the of the medicines. I know that uh, other people in science, well, of course, we know of the the modern uh, biologists and microbiologists that that. Uh, that supposed what the structure of DNA was, or in in the 19th century, the the uh, chemist who came up with the structure of benzene by thinking of the Ouroboros, the the uh, uh, the serpent with the tail in its mouth. And where do you get right. these? You know, the, oh, the the Ouroboros, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I just can't help but think with uh, this talk about all the geometric uh, uh, formations and things like that, that's one of the primary things that people report under the influence of psychedelic drugs is geometric formations and going into the worlds where it's all these different geometric formations and things. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, that's that's the first stage. I I have my own personal uh, method of of describing various right. states, and, and to me, that's the hallucinogenic state, and they're common to all of us. When we're speaking to the plants, or or to the chemicals, whatever they may be, we have very similar experiences. Now, this is why I I have an emphasis that education consists of the seven liberal arts 
plus the direct experience of I, I think you have to go in, in my terminology to the level of entheogens. This is when you when you see God. This is when you lose your your atheism. Right, and, and and you've moved past all of your fear of all of the emotional-based propaganda regarding these things, and then you can approach them in a mature way, ready to experiment with them for what they're really meant to do. Well, you can use them in complement. Uh, I like Stanislav uh, Gross's uh, uh, terms for for the various states. He, he calls it an ordinary state and a non-ordinary state. Now, direct experience to me is the non-ordinary state. Uh, ordinary states are where you can apply the uh, trivium and quadrivium. Now, they can be used in concert, like I've used them. Um, when I had my, my graduation at age 18 into direct experience, the, the trivium, which I had been drilled in just came into such a, a focus, such a defined focus, that for the rest of my life I could I could use those two in concert. Now, I've also seen, I've 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 heard trip reports of people uh, that have attracted me to this because what the terms that they use, they said that taking a psychedelic um, T- shows you how to think. Now, this is exactly right. what the trivium is. It is a method of how to think. So, see, you can come to these realizations in either realm, in either an, an ordinary or non-ordinary. But when you start using them complementarily, that's that's when you get the the insight in your ordinary state, as I would say, when you can start putting words to to some of the experiences that are ineffable, these experiences that, that are just short of words, that are just sight, hearing, sound, touch, and taste, uh, which you can't put into words. Uh, so that's why I say that they're complementary. When I, when I use the, uh, the analogy, or maybe I'd already mentioned this, uh, the, the, um, uh, the syllogism with Socrates, did I make the uh, the analogy as to where where did Socrates come from? Well, let me. I think, let me just, I think you may have, but go ahead again. Well, uh, the question has always been when utilizing that that uh, example is uh, when you're when you're putting things together when you're reasoning deductively. Uh, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Oh uh, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the question's always been, well, where did this idea of immortality or where did the idea of Socrates come from? And I say it came from uh, from uh, the various uh, materials that, that speak to us. So uh, we get, of course, we don't do this in our current culture, but we can get into the, into the argument. We, that is to find the truth of what came first. Uh, the chicken or the egg. And I, I tend to go along with uh, Terrence McKenna's idea that uh, it, it was, the, it was the, the plant kingdom, if we want to call it that, that brought about our, our higher states of, of ordinary realization. I, I think that that's where our knowledge originated. And we're just refining it in our in our ordinary states
Would you like to review for us once more what the importance of this has been to your life of learning? Well, I can give you the chronology because uh, from my seat in life now, uh, as I'm as I'm coming to the last stage, uh, I can look back on my life and and review it in in such clarity and with such new insights at this point that I can see various uh, points along the way that were pivotal. And of course, uh, I didn't know it at the time when I was when I had my guru, so to speak, who was who was letting me in on the trivium. Uh, that that would be the the long range uh, strategy that I'd use. But my my first initiation, my graduation, of course, was at age eighteen when I had direct experience through LSD, and that was pivotal. I mean, I, I can point to that as being one of the pivotal times in my life. And then from there on, when I when I went into the second stage of of life of of receiving from life. Um, that's when I, I, I lived the, the actions uh, of a person, of, of having a career, having a family, and so on and so forth. And then I, I hit that age of 55, 56, and, and uh, there just seemed to be something that was going on in, in my psyche. I didn't know what. But a lot of, th- you tend to review, or many of us, if, if you're of my type, we tend to review our lives. And one day, uh, for some odd reason, I came upon your website, and I don't even know why. I think I was looking up something on Gnosticism. And I saw your uh, book, the uh, book that you wrote with Andrew Ritchaji, uh, Astrotheology and, and Shamanism. And there were just some intriguing things that I just intuitively went to. So I ordered the book, and I opened it up, and I, I went through it in two days. And this, I can honestly say, was another pivotal point in my life. All these um, somewhat fuzzy ideas in my mind as I reviewed my life came into a focus that I had in an ordinary state as I had had uh, at age 18 when I was in an unordinary state. When I saw you explaining astrotheology, it just took me back to uh, my childhood. When, when my mother's mother, my, my maternal grandmother, who was quite a sky watcher, uh, instructed me as to what was happening there in that city of Las Cruces, which had a, a large mountain to the east side. So I became, to the east side of the city, so I became very aware of, under her guidance, as to how the sun, the moon, the stars rose above the peaks there. That's why I mentioned at the very beginning of our first interview that this place had uh, had a meaning to me. Well, when I was reading your your uh, treatment on astrotheology, all that just came pouring in, and all of a sudden, religion, organized religion, uh, made sense to me. How it had evolved, and so on and so forth. And then, of course, when I went to the uh, the shamanistic portion, the the idea of direct awareness, then everything else that was that was lying fuzzy in my mind came into focus so I, I wanted to thank you and uh, and give a recommendation to people who who have not read the book to get it because uh, as I say it was it was one of those transformative moments in my life when 
when those subjects were made explicit. The fuzziness that I had was in in those ideas being implicit. But uh, you two made those ideas explicit and opened up a whole new uh, world of investigation for me. And that's that's led to 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 the adventures that that a that a, a senior person can now have the adventures in mentality. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Well, thank you. <laughs> All right. Do you have any uh, last words? Would you like to give out any contact information or anything like that um, uh, for the audience? Well, uh, my last word is... is uh, to claim your humanity by uh, by learning on your own and thinking for yourself. And I think I might be able to give uh, my source material. I, I've gathered up uh, a bibliography and uh, uh, a couple of articles that, that I've written that might succinctly give the ideas that we've been, been discussing the last... Uh, Two sessions uh, in in written form, uh, and if you just uh, contact me at five three four trivium, and I think we all know how to spell that by now. T r i v i u m at gmail dot com. That's five three four trivium at gmail dot com. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, and uh, I definitely appreciate all of the information and you sharing this so uh, uh, vividly for the audience and for myself as well. And I look forward to having you come back on the show again sometime soon to talk about... uh, uh, well, you had a couple of different topics, I think, that you wanted to talk about. Maybe we'll have to do two shows. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's see how the next one goes, and uh, and how it might take us into the into the next topic. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that, Jan. Great. All right. Well, I'll be in touch with you soon for that. And uh, I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> okay.